He deserves our applause. He deserves our praise because he's God who heals. Have you been healed? Raise your hand if God has healed you. Guess what? Everyone in the room could raise their hand because if you've ever been sick and everyone's been sick and you ever got better, God was involved in your recovery. No one gets better without God. Getting better is good and there is no good but God. He deserves our praise. He saved us. He saved us from our sins. Do you know how extraordinary that is? Do you know how grave were our sins? My sins are grave. Your sins are grave. We use the word grave and it means serious, critical. But it's also the place of the dead. And it's an apt word to use because our sins are death among us. Our sins are the source of death. God has saved us from death, not just physical death, because these bodies still have to die. Raise your hand if you know that you're going to die. If you didn't raise your hand, you're in for a surprise. Who wants to be reminded on Sunday morning that they're going to die? You should be reminded every morning that you're going to die. Oh, Lord, teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. Not living in fear of death. Why should you be afraid of it? He saved you from it. Somebody says, well, I may not die because Jesus may come and get me. Well, amen, Maranatha, brother, sister, let it be so. But let me tell you this. Let me remind you. The Apostle Paul himself says that those who are here when the Lord returns, even though they don't die, they will be changed. In fact, he describes this change in a way that is so similar to death that it can be in the same breath. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. So maybe not all of us will have our bodies buried in a crypt Maybe not all of us will die on this planet earth before Jesus comes, but all of us will experience the kind of transformation that death brings because without death, how can there be resurrection? And we are all headed towards resurrection. Not just the believers among us, by the way, but everyone. In the end of this book, this Bible of ours, it's his, given to us. What a gift. He deserves our applause. It says that all the dead are raised, that the earth gives up all its dead. Even the sea gives forth all of its dead. And everyone comes before the throne of God. Everyone comes to be judged by God. And the name of the judge is Jesus. Now, somebody out there might say, that sounds good to me because I know Jesus. He's a loving guy, and he is. And the real love of God is such that he does not desire that anyone should perish. And when he talks about perish, he is talking not just about the death of the body, but the second death, as the Bible refers to it, which is really the death of humanity. It's the death of what we were meant and made to be. It's the death of our opportunity for relationship with our maker, the lover of our soul. It's the death of relationship with God. 
It is eternal ostracization from God. You understand? Eternal alienation from God. Eternal alienation from the only good that there ever is. From the source of love and joy and comfort. From the source of all resource. From the one light that gives light to everything else. No wonder that when Jesus talks about this death, this hell, he calls it outer darkness. Far off, far removed, and deeply in the dark. Who wants to hear about hell on a Sunday morning? Jesus talks about hell. You say, well, I don't know that I really believe in hell. Do you believe in Jesus? Because Jesus believes in hell, and he is desperately concerned about it. Not for himself. He's been there, I think. Why? To release those that were in the captivity of chains. Why? To save us from that end. And Jesus says, beware. There is this outcome that is ultimate disaster. It is ultimate destruction, but it's a kind of destruction without end. And I don't know that I can understand that, except I know enough about it to say, I don't want that. Because if you bundle together everything good about life, I mean all the best of it, even on your worst days, you've got to recognize that life can be wonderful, that there are beautiful things and joyful things, things that are passionate and pure and lovely and wonderful, hopeful. There's love. There's real peace to be found in our world. There's real beauty. And if you think about the best relationships and the best moments and the best times, and you bundle all of that together with all the love that you've ever known from the best people in your life, and you know that all of that is just a part of what God has in store for those who love him. All of that comes from him, was made by him, and in fact is amplified in him, multiplied in him. That to know him is to know all of that forever, all the time, and more. And that hell is the opposite of that. That if you bundle together all the worst, and if you've lived long enough, you could probably say like me, I've seen some bad things. I've done some bad things. And what were the effect of that? Have you ever told a lie that you so deeply regretted because it so deeply and profoundly damaged your life, a relationship? I have. I've done that. I know what it is to think I would go anywhere, do anything to reverse that. Have you ever made a choice that later on down the line you said that was the wrong choice? Have you ever hurt somebody through what you said or what you did that you would do anything to take it back? I've done that. And how did you feel at those times? Have you ever been hurt by somebody who was supposed to protect you or somebody that you thought loved you or somebody that you thought was for you and it turned out they were against you? I've experienced that. How did you feel when that happened to you? Have you ever had something stolen from you? I have. How'd you feel? Have you ever stolen something? I have. How did you feel? And a lot worse. Everything worse. 
all the worst. Have you ever been in a place so bleak and so dark that you thought I would do anything just to get out of this world? I have. And I know how that feels. Now all of that together, that's just a part of hell. That's just a little cubby, a little cabinet, a little drawer, a little taste of hell. But no one, not a single one of us can imagine just how horrific is real alienation from God. Imagine if you couldn't talk to God at all. Somebody out there says, I don't have to imagine it. That's where I am. I have good news for you today. God is listening to you right now. But I have a warning. It's right now that you can call upon him. It's today. It's not promised to you to have tomorrow. You have today. Today, if you call upon him, he hears you. Say, why are you saying this to me? I'm already a believer. If you're already a believer, then today is the day to get closer to him still. He has a purpose for you, and you and I can only really know that purpose and only really grow in it if we are really listening closely to him. And why wouldn't we want to listen closely to him unless we are afraid that there's something that he might say that we don't want to hear. Have you ever thought that God might say something to you that you don't want to hear him say? I have, and I know how that feels. But you know, I've talked a lot about feelings already today, and I want to talk to you also about facts, about realities, about truth. Because truth is even more powerful than feelings. And where feelings can be wrong, truth never is. But when our feelings are informed by truth, well, then we are standing on something solid. Listen to the song that we sang. I'm standing on your faithfulness. Aren't you glad that we are not here today singing to God, I'm standing on my faithfulness. I'm glad I'm not singing that because I know how weak my faithfulness can be. But I know how strong is his. So I want us to stand on his truth. But if we're going to do that, we need to be ready to hear everything that he has to say. <laughs> Look at the front of your bulletin today. You might not want to. A song of deliverance from secret sin. Will you say that? A song of deliverance from secret sin. I wonder how many people didn't come to church today when they saw what the message was. I suppose if you are here, that's a good sign. You weren't warded off by a title. Maybe somebody says, I didn't know that's what it was going to be. Well, I'm glad you're here. And maybe you're not here, but it has nothing to do with the fact that you didn't want to be here for the title. But I did suppose when I gave it this title that it might strike fear and dread in some people's hearts. And that was not my intent. Although, if it does, we have to ask ourselves, why? Why would that be a problem? 
Well, I suppose that somebody would say, well, I guess because I know that I've got secret sin. Well, if that's the case, yeah, that's a problem. (laughs) Oh, I took a very well-timed sip there. I wanted to leave you hanging a little bit. Yes, secret sin can refer to the things we all think of when somebody says secret sin. Something scandalous. Something that somebody is doing, which if it was found out, it would ruin their reputation. Maybe it's against the law. Maybe it's breaking marriage vows. Maybe it's simply just so disdainful or so in contradiction to one's public life that it is hidden and kept secret in order to maintain the opportunity to keep doing that sin, a wrong relationship, a wrong habit, an addiction, a perversion. You know what perversion means, by the way? There was reference made to the scripture that talks about a perverse generation. Jesus refers to the age of the world and the way of the world as being perverse. Perverse means twisted. It's going to be really relevant to us as we come to Psalm 32 in our study today. It means moved in the wrong direction. It means off target, which actually, by the way, is also the definition in the Bible of sin. The Hebrew and Greek terms for sin refer to missing the mark. They are terms that are used for an archer. You know the archer, like Robin Hood, aiming at the bullseye? Think target. If you've never seen a bullseye, just think the target symbol. They're aiming at that. That's their target, and they miss. And the measure of that miss, how far off the mark you are. In Greek, that's hamartia, that's sin. And the Hebrew term is the same. It's missing the mark. So if you're not even aiming in the right place, that's perverse. You're aiming for the completely wrong target. You're going in the completely wrong direction. The Bible says that God in his love towards us and his grace has put us, in Psalm 103 it says, as far from our sins as the east is from the west. What a beautiful thought. Many commentators will uh, reflect on the fact that you can't bring east and west together. They're diametrically opposite. So, If you're in the east, you can't be in the west and vice versa. Of course, on a globe, you can keep going so far that you come all the way around. I wonder if anyone here has walked so long in the Lord that you've come back around to walking in the way of the world. If so, don't stop there. Start coming back to God. It is possible, you know, to start to take your salvation for granted. It's start to... to, possible to start to treat cheap the grace that has been given to you it wasn't cheap it came at a cost and the cost is that blood that fills the cups right here in front of us for those of you at home i invite you to join us in communion today at the conclusion of today's message we're going to partake of the communion elements together find something that you can eat a cracker a piece of bread get a bit of juice or something to put into a cup if there's nothing available to you simply begin to pray that in your heart you could commune with us. But if you have elements there that you can pray over, prepare yours now. Because in that cup is just a bit of juice. But as our prayer reflects, it is also through the sacrament of communion, the cup of the new covenant in Christ. And that is a cup that says, I set your sins as far from you as the east is from the west. But what if you, having been put away from your sins, Start walking back toward them. One thing that occurred to me about 
the East and West being far apart is. You cannot bring the East and the West together. But what you can do is turn in the wrong direction and start walking in the other way. And that would be perverse. To be saved and set on a path and sent in the direction of all that joy, of all that light, of all that life, and then turn, even for a little while, even just a little way, back east. Here's heaven, paradise, Eden in front of you. But you say, I want to head over east of Eden because there's something there I want to do. There's just a little dalliance, a little concession to the carnality of the flesh. There's just a little bit of access to the things of the world that I want to dabble in. The problem is that is east and God is west, or whichever way you want to assign the directions. But I'm thinking of east of Eden, the direction of those cast out of the garden. In other words, God is saying, if you're going to go my way, you can't go the other way. My way is the only way. It's narrow, and only a few find it, but it ends in eternal life. And not just that object out there called heaven, but this life in here called God living in you. Christ in you is the hope of glory. God wants to live in you. Well, my family and I are in the Philippines next month. You're going to be hearing a study in the book of 1 John. And one of the things that the Apostle John writes in that letter to the church, I do believe that is the Apostle John writing, in my opinion, he writes that God wants to live in you and that when God lives in you, it's his love living in you because God is love. 1 John 4, 8 says that. And so it creates love for God and for each other. We love because he first loved us. That's what God has invited us into. And if we turn away from that, we turn away from the light and into the dark. Yes, there are people, and maybe you're one of them. I hope not. I pray not. And I don't have any inside information on you. I don't know if there's somebody in the room or who's watching online, streaming live, or maybe even a recording. If you have a secret sin, I don't know about it, okay? So for a minute, you can breathe easier, but I'm going to take that away from you in just a second. I don't know anything about it, but God knows everything about it. So you're not hiding it from him. It's no secret to him. Now, I don't think anybody in the room is a candidate for this, so I just have to say these things. But I also know this. It happens, and even David, that great king that we're going to study more about by God's grace this fall, was a man who, and this is a psalm of David that we're looking at today, sinned, and sinned in a way in which he hid it because it would be so scandalous, because it was such a perverse violation of God's order. He saw a woman bathing on the rooftop, a normal practice for that woman. The problem was not her bathing on the rooftop. The problem was his peeking in on it. And he saw her and saw her beauty and lusted after her. He knew that she was married and that her husband was a man in the army. So he called for the woman and her name Bathsheba. She came to him. He slept with her. And when he found out from her that in that act they had conceived a child out of wedlock, a violation of God's law and order, a violation of human conscience and even of society's laws, then David, rather than reckoning with it and saying, I'll make a confession, 
What I did was wrong, and I'm going to face the consequences. David doubled down on his sin. He made an arrangement for that man in the army to be brought home because they were fighting in battles, by the way, which David had said, you guys go and fight. I'm going to stay home. I have the privilege. I'm going to enjoy that luxury. That may have been where the problem started for him, indulging himself in that way. But in any case, he arranged for the man to be brought home, and the man didn't indulge himself. The man said, I've got members of my troops here, and they have to sleep in the courtyard of the palace. Or they're out, and they're on the battlefield. I'm not going to come home and sleep in my comfortable bed with my own wife when they can't do that. So the man's integrity and honor was so extraordinary. And what must have David thought? Ah, I thought I had a perfect plan to cover this up. David at that point could have come and said, you know, you're a better man than I. After all, this is David who has a heart after God. What would God have him do? What would Jesus do? Well, Jesus wouldn't have done all of that in the first place, right? What what would Jesus call him to do? Confess. But how can you? I'm the king. I could lose my job. I could lose my position. After all, what happened to Saul? And so David hides it further. He speaks to the man over this man in the military. And he says, send Uriah, that's Bathsheba's husband, Send him to the heat of the battle. And the commander says, I don't like that. If I do that, he's going to die. And David says, it's all right. It's on me. I'll take responsibility for that. I wonder if David realized just how much responsibility that entails. Because what David was doing brought death. And not just the death of Uriah. That's bad enough. But then, after Uriah was dead... And David thought that he had covered it all over. He didn't realize that what he was covering also was his own heart. That in trying to hide things from people, he had to end up hiding from God. And the horror of that, because David knew the joy of his salvation. David knew the joy of knowing God. The horror of having to distance himself from God. You know what it was? A living hell, a little bit of hell hidden inside of him. What if I baked a beautiful pie for you and I said, now there's a little bit of dog excrement, just a little bit of dog poo in here, but it's tiny and it's way deep inside. Enjoy. Do you want to eat my pie? What if I gave it to you and didn't tell you? What if I came to this place and offered up the life that I have to God in worship, but at the inside, just a little bit of excrement, just a little bit of disease and death and sin that I'm hiding? Don't see that. I love you, but I love this too. The way you respond to that pie with the dog poop in it, that's God's response to that kind of worship. No, thank you. Because God is so disgusted by sin that he can't deal with it? No, because God is so disgusted by the contrivance that says, I can hide my sin from God. I can have my sin and eat it too. But by the way, why are you holding on to the dog poop? Because you don't realize that that's what it is. You don't realize how filthy and unworthy that thing is because you're still seeing it through the eyes 
of desire. Now, when I say you, I mean me or any of us, because here's the reality. We all still struggle with sin. But let me come back to David for a moment. David was hiding that thing inside of him, but it was eating away at him. Because like a wound that hasn't been properly dressed, it can't heal. That death that brought death to Uriah, it was a living death inside of David. And the life that was growing inside of Bathsheba, that life died. The implication of the passage seems to be that the spirit of death that is always roused by the action of sin had infected all of these people in this situation. Poor Uriah, he didn't know. And he became the victim of someone else's sin. David, the man after God's own heart, the king of Israel. But David sinned, and David hid it. But at last, finally, the Lord brought a prophet to David, a man that was known to David, a prophet named Nathan, who told a story, a parable to David. We'll look at it in more um, detail in, in times to come when we get to that place in the story of the days of David. But suffice it to say that the story that the prophet told was about a privileged man who took advantage of someone else in order to grab something that wasn't his, but that he wanted. And when David was distressed that such a thing should happen in his kingdom, Nathan said, I'll tell you who the man is. It's you. You are the man. Now, at that point, David could have had Nathan put to death. He could have just kept doubling down. He could have just kept covering over his sin. And if he would have done so, he would have been walking in the way of Saul, who always insisted that he was right, even when he knew inside that he was wrong. I heard a preacher this week at the Foursquare Convention who said that his love language, according to his wife, is being right. I thought, oh, that's amazing. That's my love language, too. I always like it when people think that I'm right because it just shows how accurate they are. That's a joke, by the way. The stone faces <laughs> tell me that that must be what you think I, uh, uh, the attitude I ought to have also. Of course, we all like to think that we're right. And none of us like to be confronted with the idea that we are wrong. But what if the prophet Nathan were standing in front of you today talking about the sins of people and you and I were to say, oh, whoa, it's me. That is so very sorrowful and sad. And the prophet of the Lord said, yes, but I'm talking about you. Now, I hope and pray that there's nobody having an affair. But if you are, I'll tell you this. There's no way that you can be worshiping the Lord in one moment and having an affair in the next and not have hell living inside of you. And there's no way that you are really walking towards God if you are doing that. But there is one way to get free, and that is to confess. If there's somebody who's taken something that wasn't theirs, if there's somebody that's done something that they shouldn't have done, if there's somebody who's been harboring a habit or even a mindset, and you know it's an offense to God or a violation of his rule and way, it contradicts his word, it even contradicts your own conscience, don't keep doing it. But if you say, I can't stop doing it, or if you say, I don't want to stop doing it, then maybe it's time to recognize you need help. Because if you don't stop doing it, that way leads to death. That's going in the opposite direction of God. And really, there's no reason why somebody who is redeemed of God should want to do that, except if they're trying to hide something. 
David came to the end of his hiding. Hallelujah. And when he did, he made a confession. There were still a lot of problems. In fact, the Lord said to him, because of this, the sword will never depart from your house. I've thought about that many times, that the sword, which we often look at as the, the rivalry and violence that occurred among David's own sons. One of his sons raped one of his daughters. Terrible, but true. Another one of the sons arranged for the death of his half-brother that had done that to his sister. And one of David's sons actually tried to usurp the throne from him and ended up dying when he did so. Probably the greatest grief that David ever experienced in his life was for his son, Absalom. Oh, Absalom, oh, Absalom. A death that can be traced to David's sin. Not because it was a punishment of God, but because it was a practical outcome of David's choices. But I also think about when another man in the prophetic spirit said to a far descendant of David, Mary, the mother of Jesus, a sword will pierce your heart too. And I think of the blade that even pierces into the side of Jesus. And might that blade be considered part of the sword that never left the house of David? Because after all, Jesus is of the house of David. You see what it says to us? Our sins are what nailed Christ to the cross. It wasn't other people that crucified him. You are the man. You are the woman. I am the one who drove those nails into his hand every time I chose to go in the direction of sin. So, the fact of the matter is, you don't have to have a big ticket sin to be being called to confession today. We are all sinners. When I was preparing this message, I thought about, you know when you go on a trip and you say, I'm going to pack a carry-on bag. And then you think, I'm just going to pack a carry-on bag. I'm not going to check anything. I like to travel that way personally. I rarely, if ever, check things. If I can possibly avoid it, I don't check baggage in because it's a lot faster and easier and less stress, I think, to just have a carry-on bag until you come to pack it. Then you have to get everything into that bag. You ever look at that? You, you think, this bag, there's no way I can fit everything I need to take into this bag, but I'm going to try. And you do all that stuff with the knee and the push and the pull and the sit and the zips and the locks. You think, boy, once I get this closed, if I ever open it again, stand back, right? But you get it all packed, and then you get to the airport, and you see that little thing that nobody ever uses anymore, but that little crate where they say, it must fit inside of this. And you think, there's no way my bag is going inside of that thing, right? And then you realize, even if I don't have, nobody, you're just thinking, I hope they don't say, oh, let's look at that. I, can I check that for you? You know, I want to bring it on. But then I think, how am I ever going to get it into the overhead compartment? You know there's always that person, and sometimes it might be you, sometimes it's me, who's up there doing this thing, you know, pushing, and no, it'll close. That's the way I felt about today's message. <laughs> I had this nice little sermon from the short little psalm, and then the Lord kept saying, now put this in, and put this in. I thought, there's no way I'm ever going to get this closed. And if I do, <laughs> stand back when I open it up. Well, I'm opening it up. There's no clock on my sermon today. And if that is a disappointment to you, too bad. I have a message for you from the Lord and you need to hear it. 
You are the one who needs to confess. And it's a message to me too. So it's not me up here railing against you. You all confess. I said to our pastoral team in our meeting yesterday, we cannot ask the people to pray for something which we ourselves would not be willing to pray. And so I asked all of them, and we did, pray this way. Lord, show me what I need to confess. Because here's the thing. You know, you don't need to be having an affair or be addicted to pornography or drugs or alcohol. You don't need to be embezzling from your workplace to have sin that you're not talking about with God. All you need to do is have a bunch of stuff that you put in that category. Oh, are you ready for it? Here it comes. Of God understands. I'm so sick of that phrase. God understands. Yeah, he understands. Do you? Do I? Do we know? Oh, God understands that I tell a little lie like that. It's okay. After all, I don't want to hurt their feelings. God knows that it doesn't have so much to do with their feelings as it does with yours. That you're more concerned about what they think about you. Or that you're telling a lie to them to just go talk behind their back. Yeah, that fits in the category also of God understands. God understands how much that person offended me. I'm not, I'm not going to say anything to them. I'm too good of a Christian to do that. I forgive them. I hear this all the time, by the way. I forgive them. I just talk about them with other people. And when I talk about them with other people, I tear them down. You know what you're doing? They are like Uriah to you. You're kicking them into the battle. Not to their face, behind their back. It's not gossip. What they did is really wrong and it really hurt me, but I forgive them. But God hears all of that. And if that's somebody else in the body, guess what? Male or female, you're talking about the wife of Jesus. Brothers, <laughs> you might say, I can say whatever I want about my wife, but you better not talk about her, right? You can't say whatever you want about your wife. By the way, that's something to confess. That's wrong, too. You need to say the right things about your wife. But you know what I mean. You can say things about your spouse. You can say things about your kids. But if other people are talking about them, how do you feel? Because that's the heart of God towards you when you gossip about other people in the body. And yet, you don't call it gossip. You just say, well, I'm just talking about what they did. Or I'm just describing how I felt about it. Or whatever it is. But the Lord says, that's not of me. And see, that's the kind of stuff that we say, well, I I don't want to get into that, God. I mean, what do you expect? That everything I do is going to be of you? Yes. That's the goal. Jesus said, here's the target that you're aiming for, perfection. Be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. It means be holy with God's holiness. How can you hit that? You can't. He can. He's not asking you to hit the target of perfection. There's no way that you could. You know what drew the target? The law. The law said this is what you should be doing and here's how far away you are from it. But the law doesn't do anything to help you hit the target. The law can't stop you from sinning. It just shows you that you are. But we've done something worse. We've pretended that the law doesn't matter and therefore sin doesn't matter. And you know what? When the law doesn't matter and sin doesn't matter, then salvation doesn't matter either because you don't need it. And if salvation means you can't do the things you like to do, then, well, to hell with salvation. 
Except you can't do that because that's like saying, well, to the west with the east. You can't do that. It's not salvation that's going to hell when you do that. It's you. And it's not just that you're going to hell. It's that hell is being harbored inside of you. Because that's the opposite of God's plan, which is that heaven would be living inside of you. Can you imagine what it is to have heaven living inside of you? If you know the Lord, you don't need to imagine it. In fact, you shouldn't have to imagine it. You want to have that experience ongoingly in your life. That's what God wants for you. He wants the joy of your salvation, his strength to be operating in you. But the things that hinder it are the things that keep us from confessing everything to God. We all have attitudes, emotions, and, and, and thoughts, and behaviors that are not of God. Don't you? I have those things. Don't tell me you don't have them. I know you have them. And that is sin. No, 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 that's the stuff that God understands. Yeah, God understands sin. He calls it sin. But don't you understand that you've been set free from the consequence of that? You don't have to hide it from him. He already knows it's there. You and I are struggling with it. The point is not to hide it. The point is to continually reveal it. Confess it. Offer it up for redemption. <laughs> Give and it will be given back to you. The thing is, God is like, God is like a dry cleaner. In fact, he says that about himself. Bring me your dirty laundry, which, by the way, that's secret sin, right? That's the way you refer to it, airing people's dirty laundry. God says, bring it to me. You know what God doesn't do? He does not make a mockery and a shame out of someone who comes to him and says, I have something horrible to confess. God will not mistreat you. I've been in the position of having things to confess that I so desperately did not want to confess because I was so bitterly ashamed that even though I knew that God knew, I just felt like I can't share this with anyone else because this is too shameful. And, and you know what I've discovered about God is that he is so gracious and gentle in how he addresses that. But there's something very, very powerful about letting someone else know what your struggle is. Because if you keep that inside of you, even if it's in a place where you say, well, I'm confessing to God about it, but I don't want anyone else to know, you're still operating in that same secretiveness that is a reflection of the way of the enemy. And it's allowing the enemy to have a hold of you in a way that he won't if you'll just, as the old saying says, tell the truth and shame the devil. Now, not every single sin in every single moment has to be confessed to a confessor. But we should have people in our lives that we can share our failings and shortcomings with. And if we've wronged someone else directly, we should have an attitude that says, I need to directly address that. I need to go and say, I'm sorry, forgive me, I was wrong. I need to confess, you know what, the way that I behaved, that was wrong. It was sinful. Forgive me. It's not easy to do, but it's freeing. It's liberating. And if we don't do that, we create habits that grow. We start stuffing more and more things. It's like the, it's like the bad version of that bag. We start stuffing more and more things into the big bag that we think we can carry on to heaven. 
Here's all my bag of sin, but it's hidden, wrapped up tight. And Jesus is the one who's walking the aisles going, that doesn't come, that doesn't belong here. That stays behind. And Paul is the one who said, you know what, if you've got baggage like that, just drop kick that baby out so that we can get to the target. That weight is a weight that we can't keep on carrying. Don't wait to get rid of that weight. What is it in your life today that you don't like to talk to God about? Because that's what you need to confess. And you need to confess it first to yourself. You need to bring to the surface what it is that you want to keep hidden from God. You need to get clarity about that. He knows what it is. In fact, what this word says is that there are sins that you and I don't even know about. Did you ever unpack one of those bags from a trip, but it was a while after you got back? You had a great big bag. Maybe you had lots of bags. And so one went into the corner, and somehow weeks went by, maybe even months. And then you go, where, where is that? I cannot find where that charger is. Maybe it's in that bag. And you go and unpack that bag, and you find four other things. You probably don't find the charger. But you find four things that you thought, I didn't even know I had that anymore. Guess what? Your soul is like that, too. When you start going looking for the things that God is looking for, you might be amazed what you find in your soul. You might even find just a little bit of dog poop. <laughs> Yuck, right? I would that you and I would feel about our sin the way we would feel about that. Something so absolutely impure in a place that should be pure. The problem is not, how are we going to get rid of our sin? Your sin's already been dealt with in Christ. The problem is, how are we going to trust God enough to confess our need to him? Next week, my very dear friend, Bruno Alge, he and I served in children's ministries together, is going to be preaching in the English sermon about the baptism with the Holy Spirit. We need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We cannot walk this walk of faith without God's help. And I don't just mean the help intellectually of his word. I mean the supernatural help of his spirit, which is alive in his word. I'm not diminishing the power of the word. In fact, I'm wanting to apply it. Because if you and I just know the word, but we use it to cover ourselves... It's just like those leaves that Adam and Eve used in the garden to try and cover themselves. It doesn't do the job, not because this is insufficient. In fact, the Lord says that the leaves of those trees are for the healing of the nation, but rather the action of trying to cover ourselves with anything instead of coming under the covering of Christ himself is the religious wrong. There's two ways that we can go wrong about God, I suppose. One is to say, I don't need God. I don't care about God. I'll do my own thing. And the other is to say, I'm going to satisfy God in my own way. I'm going to do all the laws and the rules and the rituals that seem right, and I'm going to do them better than anyone else. But that's not what God's asking for. In fact, that's not what God wants. What does God want? A broken and contrite heart. He wants you to open up. He wants you to trust him enough that you would be naked with him and not ashamed. That's how he made us, by the way. It's not perverse. 
No, it's pure. He wants to clothe you. When the promise of the Father was issued, Jesus said, you will be clothed by the Father. In the garden, they tried to make their own clothes, and the Father said, no, that's not going to work. I'm going to make a sacrifice. I'm going to give you animal skins that come from animals. Animals are going to be sacrificed to cover you. But the real reason that sacrament occurred was so that we would know it's only by the blood that is offered for you by the Father that you can be clothed. But when you are clothed in that blood, which is the blood of Jesus, you are robed in righteousness and you will be imbued with holiness. His holiness. And that baptism in the Holy Spirit is a distinct experience by which people who have received the gospel and have believed its promise and have put their trust in God and have willingly confessed, I am a sinner in need of your grace, are then filled to overflowing with the Spirit of God. And I know what that feels like because I am a sinner who has been washed in the blood of Jesus and I am a sinner who has been filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what it is to be a saint and you are called to be a saint. Not someone who doesn't struggle with sin, but someone who confesses their sin and walks in the way of the righteousness of the Spirit. You will feel love like you've never felt before. You will recognize your sin and you will weep over it. You will realize the dire need of people who are bound for hell and you will care that they are going to hell and you will care so much that you would be willing to pour out your life so that they could hear his truth and you will receive gifts. There is a sign and signal of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. There is the release of prophecy. There is the release of tongues, spiritual gifted language. There is discerning of spirits. There are gifts and miracles of healing. There's deliverance from demonic oppression. And we need this. You've got to be desperately hungry for this or else why are we here? I have no desire to simply hold a church service week in and week out to massage weary souls with bromides of pleasant truths. I want not just to have church, but to be the church. And you cannot be the body of Christ without his spirit. Jesus said, you've got a mission, but you can't go on that mission until you receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Is it necessary to be baptized in the Holy Spirit in order to be saved? No. Is it necessary to be baptized in the Holy Spirit in order to do the work you've been saved for? Yes! Absolutely necessary. And non-negotiable. This is God's way. And why would we want to try and arrange any other way? I'll tell you why. Because one thing that the Holy Spirit will not do is he will not cohabitate with sin. He's too holy for it. When God came close to his people, he said, stand back because I'm holy. But when Jesus came in the incarnation, he said, come come to me, come close. Why? Because I'll make you holy. Because if we come close to God, there's death. But what Jesus knew is, I'm dying that death for you. I'm dying that death so that you can live this life. 
Is there anything more valuable than this? Not at all. Read this psalm of David with me. By the way, this psalm is how we began this year. In this very pulpit on January 1st of 2023, as we declared it, the year of perseverance, a word from the Lord by his spirit, we read this verse together first, and I ask you to read it with me now. It's from um, sort of the central portion of this psalm. Read it with me, will you? This is the Passion Translation. I heard the Lord saying, I will stay close to you, instructing and guiding you along the pathway for your life. I will advise you along the way and lead you forth with my eyes as your guide. So don't make it difficult. Don't be stubborn when I take you where you've not been before. Don't make me tug you and pull you along. Just come with me. Somebody out there may be saying, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a believer that, you know, once saved, always saved. Once I've been forgiven of my sins, then my sins are forgiven. They're as far as the east is from the west. They're forgotten. They're dropped in the sea. I agree with all of that in principle. The point I'm making is, if we say all of that, and we use it as a cover to keep on sinning, then we are really doing something desperately wrong. And that's itself something to be confessed. But if what we say is, all of these things are true, I am saved, and my sin is all dealt with, But I live in this body that has fallen. It's still going to die. I live in this world that has fallen. It's still riddled with sin. And I myself struggle with sin. Then what we can recognize is it's not me but sin that lives in me. And the solution for that is that him who lives in me, who is greater than sin, would evict the sin and help to redeem and release me from the effects of sin. Are you getting what I'm saying? In other words... You've been cured of the disease, but there's physical therapy you need to do, okay? You had the procedure that removed the problem, but now you need to walk out your healing. If somebody has a major uh, orthopedic procedure and then says, I'm not going to do any of the PT, none of the physical therapy that comes after it, guess what? The problem that results can sometimes be worse than the problem that began, And actually, the scripture says something like that. In the book of Hebrews, it says, if this sacrifice of Christ having been made for us, we turn away from it in order to keep on sinning, then what sacrifice remains? You've been set free if you are in Christ, but now it's time to live free if the Spirit is in you. And if you're not living free, the Spirit is not living in you because the Spirit is free. Listen, friends, Oh, my God, that you would believe this word. There is absolutely no failure of God to fulfill his word. He heals people physically. He casts out demons. He is able to do the impossible. There is no limit on the miracles God will do through you. So why is there a limit on the miracles that God does through you? You you think I'm asking you to do more miracles? What miracle can you do? Even if you could do one, even if I could do one, we'd be like the the magicians of Egypt. It'd be profane. It'd be perverse. No, what I'm saying is let God make you the miracle that he's doing. Let him do what he wants to do in you. This week I was with a dear friend 
whose son died at 44 from cancer. We did his memorial service right here at PCF. I remember in the weeks leading up to his death, we knew that the cancer was getting worse and worse. We had been praying fervently that he would be healed and we had been, been praying fervently that he we would be saved because he had heard the gospel as a little child. His mother, a very devout, devout woman, and in fact a minister, and he had walked away from it. Any parent who has experienced that process knows that that's one of the most heart-wrenching things. And by the way, that's what the heart of God experiences all the time with all of us, is that he, in his love, has shown us the truth, and all we like sheep have gone astray. We've all gone off the path. We've all gone off the reservation. And this son of hers had gone pretty far afield. He was the prodigal. But as his death grew nearer and nearer, there was more and more a sense of urgency on her part and the part of every believer praying for them that he would have a change of heart. Now, the gospel includes confession of sin because that's what the gospel says. The good news is you have sin that God can deal with. But if you say, I have no sin, then the truth is not in you. And there's a problem that remains because the sin that is there is your sin indeed. But in the last hours, literally, before he passed, he received Jesus as Savior. We love those stories, and well we should. But he still died, and that was hard, very, very hard. And I got the call the morning that he died, and the request, can you come and be here? And it was almost impossible to do. We had a medical appointment that was literally about to start, not just a casual medical appointment, something that gets scheduled six months in advance, very significant, not easy to rearrange. And also, I'm going to go there and do what? He's dead. Be with the person and pray with them, you say. Of course, you don't know that? Oh, my gosh, this guy is the pastor. No, I know that. I just mean, has that ever been you? You think that by being a pastor, you suddenly have this great ability to do that? You know how hard that is to do? To go be in the place where someone is, his body's still there? A 44-year-old man has died for no good reason from cancer, a horrible thing, and you have to go and be there and make sense of it? You can't. Just be with them. But you feel that feeling, and you know that feeling of, I wish there was more that I could do. Guess what? You can't do anything but the one who can is living in you. And it was one of those moments where I just said, Lord, I need your help. But it calls me to a mindfulness. You can't have the spirit available to you in that moment of need if you're not available to him in every other moment of your life. Or at least you're doing something to inhibit that awareness on your part. The more that you indulge, in your own way of doing things, which that's what sin is, your own way of doing things. Are you starting to feel why I'm saying we are all the ones that have to confess? Because we all do our things the way we want to do them. We're not that deeply concerned, friends, with how God wants us to do them. Or where we are deeply concerned with how God wants to do it, we tend to be religious about it. But what we're not so keen on is that real awareness of God's still small voice in our heart when we're doing something our way and we don't want to stop doing it our way. Sometimes I feel bad and I just want to feel bad. 
Sometimes I'm angry and I just want to be angry. Sometimes I'm bored with that and I don't want to be interested in it. Those are the moments, right? But every time you and I cover that over and indulge that and say, well, God understands. Yeah, he understands, but he wants you to understand. Those are opportunities for confession and clarity, but if they become cover-up, then those are ways in which you distance yourself from the Spirit of God. And then what about the moment that comes when there's a death in that day? What about the time when crisis comes? See, blessed are those who are close to the Lord because in crisis they will be comforted and because in the moment of need they will have provision. I went that morning, and I just want to share with you that this was some years ago now. I think this is five years ago now, that the, almost, that this happened. And in sharing this, I take a risk. It's really important for you to know that what the Lord was able to do through Hazel and I that day when we went to that home was very blessed and it was no reflection of any aptitude on our parts particularly. There are certain things you learn in ministry and certain things that are God-given things of experience and that was all operating, but that all comes from God anyway. But the bigger measure of what really made such an impact was the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit and that's not something we conjure and it's not unique to us. But I would be lying and denying God glory if I didn't say there was a powerful presence of the Holy Spirit that day when we showed up. And what's interesting is the family has Catholic background. And uh, because of uh, that, that background on the, on the other side of that family, uh, not that there's anything particularly wrong with this. I'm not trying to present it in that fashion. But there was a Catholic priest that had been invited to come in. And there were requests for prayer. In fact, one of the things was that this man was very close to his dogs. He and his wife did not have any children. And you may know families like this. You may be a family like this. Those dogs were practically their kids. And they were beautiful dogs, big, beautiful dogs. And those dogs, if you've ever been in the home of somebody very close with their dogs after that person has passed, you tell me those dogs don't know that person's gone. They do. They do. They sense it. In fact... There's even been studies shown that dogs, maybe through their olfactory sensibilities, because they're so sensitive that way, can actually pick up on the sense of death. These dogs were very distressed. You could tell it right from the get-go. In fact, they were so large that they had to be gated in the kitchen. And the, they had asked the priest if he would pray for the dogs. And the priest said, uh, I don't pray for dogs. That does not happen. And I'm not praying for those dogs especially. And... They had asked if he would pray over the body, but that's not the, the, the fashion. And so basically, here was someone coming from God who was not able to meet the need that was experienced in that place because of his disposition. I don't think it's particularly a factor of Catholicism. I think it is a factor of was the spirit at work there. I won't make a judgment about that person. I didn't even meet them. I can just tell you that when we arrived on the scene, the statement to us was, we just are hoping someone could pray for us in the ways that we feel we need prayer. And, and the statement of the Holy Spirit back to them was, yes, and amen. And when I laid my hand on the, the sleeping body, that's the way the scripture refers to the dead body, the one that was asleep, I knew that the Spirit had flown, but I also knew that the Spirit of God was present in that place and that we were praying a blessing over this family and a thankful prayer to God for the life and body of this man. And I came and prayed for those dogs, and what did they do? It wasn't because of me. It was because of the Holy Spirit. 
they immediately laid down and grew very, very peaceful. And it was a sign to everybody in the room. In fact, there was a Filipina nurse that said, oh my goodness, do you go to the Philippines? Will you pray for my house? And I said, I do go to the Philippines from time to time. And, um, and in fact, I can do better than that. I don't need to wait. We can pray over your house right here because God is over your house right now. We can pray over your house. We can pray over your family. And what else would you like prayer for? And you know what I'm always hoping in that moment? That people would, in that moment, take the opportunity to confess something. A need. Because every single one of us has a need. I've got needs to confess. I need God's help. And when people do that, I'm always excited because what I know is there's an availability here for a greater release of the Holy Spirit. There's an availability here for the life of God. But confession is preliminary to that. God is saying, I want to take you, listen now, I want to take you into the greatest blessings you've ever known, and I want to make you a blessing to others. That woman this week, as we were talking about it, she brought up that time. We were at a common dinner, and she said, I want to tell you about the time that Courtney and Hazel came and did this. And I felt embarrassed at first because I just know that it's absolutely just God. But she was giving all the glory to God anyway, and so that's good. But she said that you two were like the embodiment of the Holy Spirit for us that day. Well, that's what we are supposed to be. That's what it means to be the temple of God. See, you and I don't know how to do what we need to do, and there's no way that we know how to reach this world around us right now, which is demonized. Do you realize? The world around us is in the slavery of demonic deception. If we are operating in that deception too, then how can we be salt and light? Because if we lose our saltiness, if we lose our light, where does it come from? It comes from God. It comes from the Spirit. So what could be hindering us from receiving the Spirit? Anything that is hindering us from hearing from God. That's what we want to pull the veil back on today. That's what we want to pray for. That's what the deliverance is. Deliverance from the things that we keep from God. There's a problem when we are silent about our own sin, when we rename it not sin, when we say, that's just the way I am. Hey, I've got a fiery temper. That's the way God made you. Don't blame God for your temper. God said, don't be angry that way. He didn't make you that way. You are a sinner that way. Well, you say, it's just my nature. That's your sin nature. Well, it just feels good. So what? God wants to deliver you out of that anger. It's no excuse that it comes naturally to you. It needs to be a supernatural deliverance. I don't mean try and control your anger. I mean give control to God. When we're silent about those kinds of things, well, I'm just not a very outgoing person, so that's why I don't witness to people about my faith more. Well, become an outgoing person. You've been sent out, so you better be going out. That requires you to be outgoing. Listen, I'm shy too. I'm not saying that you have to do damage to who you are. I'm saying you need to be transformed. You will become more outgoing in Christ. It is okay to be introverted. You can still be outgoing. The Lord will know how to balance you that way. In fact, he's the only one that does. 
The reason that there's so many among us who are struggling with depression and confusion and, and anxiety and, and, and even physical malady has to do with sin. That's the only explanation given in Scripture. It has to do with holding back and holding on to things. And we all have to come to a place of clarity about that. There's an alternative. Make a clean breast of things. That means show your chest to God. Nobody take it literally, please. But what I'm saying is, let God see you in your nakedness. Because in that comes the comfort of Christ and the clarity of God's holy counsel. And it enables us, in the fullness of the Spirit, to have purity. I'm going to read this, ver- this psalm with you, and it's very quick to read. There's three sections to it. The problems of sinful silence, which rise up in us, they stack up in us. And then the comfort that comes from clear confession and the clarity that comes from the Lord himself. Now, the Holy Counselor of God is his very own spirit. The Holy Spirit gives you the mind of God. When Paul says, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ, it's the mind of God, it's the spirit of Christ, it's the Holy Spirit. This psalm is a mascal. It means a contemplation, probably. It is calling us to deeply consider, will you do this? I know that it's... uh, a long-toothed sermon. I know that. I'm trying to get deep into something. You ever go to the dentist and they say it's going to take a while to get to the root of this? That's what we're doing right now. Welcome to the Holy Spirit root canal. The alternative is worse. There's something better, deeper. Consider this. Blessed or happy. It comes from a verb meaning go straight. In other words, the psalmist here, probably David, is saying, blessed with a straight path to the target. That's what this is. Blessed in holiness. It's the same word that Jesus uses when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who humble themselves before the Lord because they receive what they are hungering for, which is the spirit of of righteousness. And they are enabled to go straight on the path. Blessed are those whose transgressions, it means rebellions, it means they're turning away, like me, like you, turning in the wrong direction. Blessed are those who God says, I forgive your turning away. In fact, I carry away your turning away. That's what the Hebrew literally means here. God comes and carries away that attitude of turning away. You know, people say, I want to want God, but I just don't have that in me. I just want to be honest. That's fine. Be honest about that. Let God carry that away from you and let him get you carried away with him because he wants you to know who he really is. Blessed are those whose sins, whose missing of the target is covered clothed. Remember that the first sin in the garden resulted in the people saying, we are ashamed because we are naked, but they were covered by the Lord before. So what happened from their sin was death and shame. And here the psalmist says, blessed are those whose death is carried away and whose shame is covered by the goodness of God. How happy are those? Blessed is the one whom the Lord does not account as depraved. The Lord looks at you and says, you're not twisted. You're not perverse. You say, well, I don't think God looks at anyone as being perverse. 
God looks at people and says, you're going in the wrong direction. Why else would he say, turn and come back to me? That's what the word repent means in Hebrew. It means turn, turn back to me. And blessed are you if God looks at you and says, you're not turned away, you're turned toward me. Now, if you are turned towards God, and let's say that you're living with a great deep devotion to God, I still think that you and I have things that we could say, God, I want to see the sin in me that I don't know about. Will you just say that right now? Lord God, show me the sin in me that I don't know about. I'm telling you we have it. Because if we're alive in this world, in this body, we are still engaged in the struggle with sin. Not in terms of the ultimate outcome, but in terms of our daily living. So what we want to do is come boldly before the throne of grace and say, God, I'm not afraid to pray that way because I know that you know that it's in me and I just want to get it dealt with. It's like going to the dentist and saying, will you check to see if I have any cavities? Do you think there's any good going to the dentist and saying, don't look for cavities. I'm sure I don't have any. Well, maybe, maybe you don't feel it yet. You want to wait until it gets worse? It's like having some malady and saying to the doctor, well, don't check for cancer. I'm sure I don't have it. Don't look for sin, God. I'm sure I don't have any. God is the great physician who says, actually, your sin's consequences have been dealt with, but I want to make you holy, so I'm purging all of that out of you. So let him look. He's the one that's going to heal it. It's good when the doctor finds what's wrong because then the doctor can make it right. Let Dr. Jesus make it right. And his prescription for you is baptism in the Holy Spirit. There is no deceit in the Spirit of God. So when you and I are living in God, we need not to have deceit in us. We are all prone to deceit, so we need to ask for God's help. The psalmist says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning. Roaring. The term is used very often in the Old Testament for lions. You know, it made me think of Peter, we looked at this last week, who said that the enemy prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for whom he can devour, right? And the psalmist is saying here, when I was hiding my sin, I was complaining all the time, but I was complaining in the voice of the devil. How often does the devil talk through you? I've had the devil talk through me before. I don't mean like Linda Blair style. I'd prefer not to have that. That happens, by the way, but I've not had that experience. Thank you, Jesus. But what I can say is I've had the experience of saying something that as soon as it came out of my mouth, I thought, what the devil did I just say? And that's the right way to think of it. Because, you know, the old Flip Wilson sketch where he used to say, the devil made me do it. You can't put the blame on the devil, but sometimes you need to recognize where it came from. And the psalmist is saying, when I was hiding my sin, I became a spokesperson for Satan. Because even when I'm trying to give glory to God, I'm doing it from the wrong heart. And I'm doing it in the wrong way. And I'm complaining, but it's not God's fault. But God wants you to be a mouthpiece for him. The embodiment of the Holy Spirit where you are. Day and night, the psalmist says, Your hand was heavy on me. Lord, I pray that you would lower your heavy hand upon us right now. Let the full weight of your observance of us be felt upon our souls. The psalmist says, it was so heavy, I was so weary, that my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. 
I'm getting ready for that Philippines heat. Oh, man. It's the only place where I sweat in the shower. That's how I've come to describe the heat in the Philippines. I'm in the shower and I'm, I'm sweating. I don't even know how that's possible, but that's the way I feel about it. You know, in the middle of the day, have you ever been out Death Valley Way? Be careful if you do a hike there. Don't do it in the summer. People die out there. The psalmist says, that's the way I felt. Absolutely parched. The Apostle Paul quoted these verses when he made his writings to the Romans. There's no one that's righteous, not one. No one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now we know no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. We see how far we are missing the mark. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law, the Torah, and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means all of us have something to confess. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. What does scripture say? It says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. And now, Paul says, this is what David is talking about in Psalm 32. He says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Friends, if you are in the body of Christ, your transgressions are forgiven and your sins are covered by this blood right here, by this Lord God of all. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. You think, well, Courtney, isn't that what the whole message is about? Is you're saying God's going to count your sin against you? No, this is what I'm really saying. You are counting your sin against you. Because if you are embracing your sin, if I'm embracing my sin, then I'm not embracing God. God has already stretched out his arms as wide as the cross to embrace me. He has already erased my sin, but he has not erased my freedom to choose how I will live. Blessed is the one who chooses to live God's way. And since we cannot do it without his spirit, blessed is the one who hungers and thirsts for the spirit of God. Blessed is the one who says, take away my sin from me and grant unto me your spirit. Confession acknowledges the truth of God and the truth of our sin. We are saved, but we have sins to confess. So confess them and invite real relief and blessing. Let God remove your weariness and restore your joy. Are you tired? Are you sick? Are you lacking in enthusiasm? Do you have the fullness of joy that God wants for you? If not, confession may be the step to take to open the way, to let God deliver you from confusion and waywardness and let God cover you in his own righteousness, to let God straighten your path and delight your heart in his ways. 
David says, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, will you read this aloud with me, the purple phrase there? I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah. You see, real forgiveness becomes experienced when we make real confession. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Today. You can talk to him today. I can't promise you tomorrow. Don't wait another moment to say, I want to give everything of myself to you. I want to be free from sin. Now, you and I, as long as we live in this world, there's going to be a challenge in that. So the way to live is constantly coming to the Lord every day and saying, I want to be free from my sin. Show me how to walk in your spirit. Lord Jesus Christ, fill me with your Holy Spirit again today. I try and pray that every day because I need it every day. I need him. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach those who call upon the Lord. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. It would appear that the later prophet Isaiah has in mind this call to prayer to God while he may be found in this part of the psalm. When he says in Isaiah 55, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Forsake the wicked way. Forsake unrighteous thoughts. Return to the Lord. God will have compassion on them. The point of this message is not God hates you so much. The point of this message is God loves you so much that he wants to really deliver you. And he wants you to know the fullness of your salvation. He will abundantly pardon. There's nothing God can't deliver you out of. Nothing that God won't forgive. But if there's something that you don't want to stop doing, you need God's help to see it in its right light. Because your thoughts are not God's thoughts. His thoughts and ways are higher than mine and yours. He follows this statement in Isaiah 55 by the promise of the provision of his word, which is like seed to the sower and bread to the eater. The concluding clause of verse 6 calls to mind the flood. The psalmist is saying, whoever's calling upon the Lord isn't going to be drowned in the waters. In the days of Noah, the Lord saw the earth and all of its people as being filled with violence. It says, God looked on the earth, Genesis 6, 12, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. When God looks at you and me, what does he see? When God looks at you, he sees everything. What does he see? He sees more than you do. He sees more than I do. When God looked at the earth in those days, he said, I see sin. And he sent the flood to cleanse the earth like a baptism. But he preserved life and all humanity through Noah in the ark. Now Jesus said, the coming of the Son of Man will be just like in the days of Noah. When the wicked did not understand, literally there in the Greek, the wicked didn't know People didn't know how bad their sin was. They didn't see it. The world doesn't know how badly it's sinning. That's not a surprise. The problem is too many people in what is called the church don't know how badly they're sinning. 
And just because they call themselves Christians, they think it's not a problem. Sin is always a problem. The detriment of sin is death. And that penalty has been paid. But it continues to be a problem if you and I desire sin more than God. And you can't have both. You either are going to love one and hate the other or vice versa. So if there's any love of sin in you, it's a violation of love of God. And that's what you and I need to confess. We harbor things like that. Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes, there will be people who don't realize the penalty of their sin is upon them. Now, the Lord is not going to flood the world again. The psalmist is saying, even if he did, you would be in the ark. You would be in the Lord. But what the Lord is going to wash the earth in next time is not water, but fire and blood. That's what Revelation says. The baptism has come. Will you walk in it? The Spirit has come. Will you receive of him? Because the Lord shall come. And whether you walk in the baptism or not, Christ shall judge. But those who are in Christ are in the ark. And while the rest of the world is purged, I don't mean to say that you and I take joy in the fate of anyone whose demise it comes in the wrath of the Lord, but rather our hope is in God. And so that is also our call. We say, you are my hiding place, God. You will protect me from trouble. You will be my ark. And the songs of deliverance really reflect that true worship wells up from this. In my worship class, which is going to be starting in five minutes. No, I'm kidding. In two o'clock, but that's how long I'm preaching today. Two o'clock, anybody can come. Anybody can come. Come and pray and worship the Lord and receive a fresh baptism in the PSOM room today. You have other plans? Break them. What are you going to do? Bury your father? Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead. Remember the man who had to bury his father and said, I'll follow you, Jesus, but first I've got to do this. And Jesus said, no, first you've got to follow me. I'm calling you to come. You don't have to be a part of the class. Come worship the Lord at 2 p.m. and see what happens. God wants to pour out his spirit. But you and I need a preparation. We need to prepare ourselves to receive. There's real work in this, and the work is yours. It's you who will take your heart to the Lord. It's you that will make your determination. How much are you willing to confess? How deep do you really want to go? How much do you really want to receive of the Lord? Because the more that you ask, the more you shall receive. And the more that you receive, the more you shall worship. In songs of deliverance that usher in praise for God. And praise for God is part of the way in which God also opens our eyes to right living. The Lord himself says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Don't be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. When I read this passage, I think of Paul on the road to Damascus. When he describes it in his trial in Acts 26, he says that the Lord said to him, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. I'll bet Paul had this passage, this Psalm 32 in mind. The Lord was saying to him, 
I'm trying to lead you away from sin, and you're headed right into the very deadly mouth of it. Paul on the road to Damascus, ready to kill Christians because he believes he's doing God's work, and God himself, Jesus Christ, appears to Paul, blinds him with the light, and says, stop going in the direction that you're going and turn and go my way. And Paul says, yes. Paul confesses that he needs to. He needs to follow the Lord. And because of that, Paul says that the Lord says to him, I'm sending you to the Jews and the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Real worship brings real joy. And this is the real body and blood of Christ that you and I are going to partake of here. For those of you that are at home, bring your elements before you at this time. Prepare to partake of them. As you take part in communion today, I'm asking you to make a confession. If you want to make it to the person to your right or to your left, you can. You don't have to. That is entirely up to you and the prompting that you would have in the Lord. But I am saying there's not a single one of us that does not need to make a confession to God this morning of something. Even if it is simply this, God, I want to want you more. Forgive me for not wanting you as much as you want me. It could be simply that. Someone out there, maybe you need to give your whole life to Jesus. Maybe today is the day in which you need to confess, I have been a rebel to you, God. And I have not been a believer in you, Jesus, but I sense that you are calling me to a place of freedom and liberty today, and I want to make you master of my life. Then this cup of communion can be your covenant agreement with him. Maybe somebody out there really needs to make a plan, and I just started cracking the shell of it today. But you really do have a sin that you know is a problem, and you don't talk about it with anybody, but you know God's not pleased with it, and you know this, it's not helping you. And you know it, but you don't know how to stop it. And you've come to a place where you think, well, I guess I just live with it. No, he, Jesus, died for it. And he died so that you don't have to live with it, but you can't fix it yourself. You need to confess it. If your communion partaking today is just the beginning step, then make that beginning step. You say, I can't confess it today, okay? I can't promise you tomorrow, but you know what you can do today? You can make a choice. I'm gonna start talking to God about this. I'm gonna start talking with someone else about this. I'm gonna start praying about this. I'm gonna get myself to the place. I'm gonna ask God to give me the courage to come clean with somebody about this. Maybe you've got a gambling problem. Maybe you've got a drinking problem. Maybe you're abusing uh, medications. Maybe you take things from work. Maybe you're not being honest with your spouse. Maybe you're not being honest in school. Maybe you cheat in your schoolwork. Maybe you cheat at work. That's not the way of the Lord. That's not something that's okay with God. That's not a witness for Jesus. And it is something you can be delivered out of. Maybe you have an addiction to pornography. Maybe it's not every day, but it's something that keeps coming back. Maybe you have a relationship that you're in that you know is not of the Lord, but you really feel so close to that person. But God has said to you, that's not the right person for you to be with. Maybe you have an issue that I haven't mentioned, 
but it is some aspect, depression, anxiety, a delusion about yourself, about your, your, your sexual nature or your gender, a delusion about who you are in the Lord. Maybe you're operating under the bondage of legalism and you have a religious spirit that you need to be delivered out of, which is one of the hardest things to recognize. But you know how you could know if you have that? If you never, ever feel confident of your salvation, if you never, ever have joy in your forgiveness, if you're always the first to judge other people, but you yourself have a fear inside of you about God that isn't holy reverence, but is instead a scared sense of shame, then you may have a legalistic religious spirit binding you. And it's time to confess that. And this communion can be the beginning of that. Maybe your sin is you don't care enough about having the Holy Spirit to ask for him and keep asking. Maybe your thing is, I don't really want to speak in tongues or prophesy. That stuff seems weird to me. And I don't like that kind of thing. And I don't want to become some crazy rolling in the aisles, holy roller. And so if that's what that means, then I don't want it. Well, it's not what it means. But let me tell you this. The Holy Spirit doesn't come and say, am I what you want? I'll be what you want. The Holy Spirit comes to make you what he wants. And maybe what you need to confess with this cup is, Lord, forgive me for living without the fullness of your spirit so complacently. Make me desperate for your Holy Spirit and for the fullness of that baptism because there's too much flesh among us, friends. Can I just say that? There's too much flesh among us and not enough of the Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit if we are going to be truly praised Christian fellowship. And if we don't have the Holy Spirit, then I don't care what we call ourselves. We are not the people of God. You and I are being called to confess and to desire and to receive the Holy Spirit. Lord, this bread reminds us that you lived in a body just like ours. You were subject to temptation just like we are, so you don't judge us for being tempted because you yourself were tempted. It's no sin to be tempted because you were tempted and you never sinned. The difference is, Lord, we have. And right now, as we break this bread to remind ourselves of the breaking of your body, we realize that it was our sin that caused the breaking of your body because you allowed it. That is, you allowed yourself to be broken so that we could be made whole. As we eat of this bread, we ask that you would show us your ways and your higher thoughts. We ask that you would help us to make a clean breast of you. And I'm praying this, Lord, too, that each one of us, as we prepare to eat this bread, that we would make confession, whether to you or to you and someone next to us, of something that we need forgiveness of, of something we need your help with. as you took that bread your mind suddenly became flooded with all kinds of things that you do wrong I did if you didn't have that experience 
ask for it. Because there's all kinds of things we do wrong. And God wants to set them right. But now here's this. Inside of this cup comes the blood of Jesus to forgive all of that wrong. Lord, we lift before you this cup of the covenant. And we thank you that it promises us full forgiveness of sin. As we drink of this cup of your blood shed for us, we ask that you would cover our wrong and fill us with your right, with your righteousness, with your holiness. I ask that each one of us, as we partake of this cup, would say, Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for forgiving my sin. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, having received of the body and blood, I bless you in the name of him who redeems you from all unrighteousness and sets you free from all sin. And I fill you with a holy expectation that in the week ahead, you would have a closeness with God and a close dealing of confession of sin that would purify you as a house swept clean for the breaking of every bondage of the demonic, for the delivering of every fullness of the Spirit, for the preparing of every heart, for the receiving of all of God. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ of Pentecost and His very Holy Spirit, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, amen.